0: Wonderful to be with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. We've already read it once in the service, but I want to direct your attention there again. Pastor, thank you again for the privilege of the pulpit. Uh, Jimmy and Susie and I were enjoying some memory lane last night over dinner, and uh, I was reminded that when I was a 14-year-old boy, uh, my youth director took me to the Tampa Youth Conference where… There was a pastor named Jimmy Young preaching. Now, he's not that much older than me, just about that much older than me. He was a child prodigy uh, teaching uh, at the Tampa Youth Conference, but I've known him since I was 14 years old and have followed his ministry and have known about the ministry here at Grace Evan. But uh, I, what a joy to finally be here and to open God's Word. I love the theme of your missions conference. I love that you care about pastor training. That is rare for local churches. Most local churches just think that prepared and qualified pastors just show up somehow. But there is a long process of training. I mean, think about it. Jesus himself goes through 30 years of preparation before his public ministry. Now, now if, if Jesus doesn't begin... His public ministry. Paul goes through a period of preparation for public ministry. He explicitly tells Timothy to equip and prepare and test pastor, teacher, shepherd, elders before they go into ministry. The Bible's very, very concerned about preparation of pastor, teachers for ministry to the local church, but a lot of people don't connect that with the Great Commission like your congregation has. You're talking about pastor training in the 21st century as a part of a missions conference. That is extraordinary. This, In, in all the years of my life, I have never been to a church that's connected pastor training and the Great Commission in a missions conference, never which is mind-blowing because it's right there in the Great Commission, as I'm going to show you today. I want, to, I want to take you to two things that Jesus does that teaches us about pastor training and then how it relates to the Great Commission. Then I just want to take you to some passages from the Apostle Paul that show you that Paul gets this. He understands what Jesus is saying, and he actually weaves this into the fabric of the church. And I want to, I want to talk about a strategy for missionary Discipleship. When you invest in pastor training, you are investing in a strategy for missionary discipleship. What what we want to see happen is disciple making disciples raised up, edified, equipped around the world for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the glory of God, for the good of the church, for the praise of Jesus. And pastor, teacher, shepherd, elders are God's plan for how that happens. And that that goes right back to Jesus, and Paul sees it too. So let's pray and look at God's Word together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and they fall, but Your Word stands forever. Sanctify us with truth. Your word is truth. All scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable for teaching so that we may be equipped for every good work. So speak, Lord. Your servants listen. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the word of God beginning in Matthew 28. Start with verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. And thus far, the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word, may He write its eternal truth upon all our hearts. I want you to see a couple of things here. One is, I want you to note I mean, most of us know this verse by heart, and we've heard it at half or maybe most of the mission conferences that we've attended in our lives. I mean, the Great Commission is one of the texts that you hear at a missions conference. And we, it, we're so familiar with it, we may be missing some things. So notice that Jesus does not say, Go make converts by sharing a simple gospel outline and getting people to pray a prayer. He says, make disciples by baptizing and teaching them. That is, did you realize, the Great Commission is a commission to discipleship. He, he's not just wanting people uh, to pray a prayer. He wants people to be discipled. And what is a disciple? A disciple is someone who is like his or her master. That's what a disciple, a disciple is a follower. So Jesus wants the disciples to go make other disciples. He wants his followers to go make other followers who want to be like him. And he tells us in this passage how to do that. You make a disciple baptizing and teaching. Now I want to look at both parts of those. First of all, two things about baptism. Baptism is indeed a sign that the promises of God that He made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12, 15, and 17 have come to us in Jesus Christ and we have been saved by His person and work. We've been saved by grace. So baptism is a sign of the fulfillment of God's promises to us in Christ Jesus. And so it's designed to assure us of the salvation that God has purchased for us in Christ. It is also a witness to God's lordship over us. Now, again, when Jesus says you make a disciple by baptizing, one thing that tells you is you make a disciple in the church. Because where do we baptize? In the church. It takes a church to make a disciple. It takes a church to make a disciple because God did not create us to be lone rangers. He he created us to need one another, to live in accountability to one another. We need one another. the, The place that you make a disciple is in the context of the fellowship and mutual accountability of the local church. God has a plan to reach the nations. It's called the church and there is no plan B. So that's where he wants disciples to be made. But when, you, when you're baptized, you're also taking on Jesus' name as your Lord. You know, you're not only saying, Lord, I'm saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, he's my Savior. You're accepting his lordship. That's why baptism is such a significant thing. You you heard this morning, read about the Apostle Paul persecuting the church before he was the Apostle Paul. One of the reasons he was persecuting the church is they were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and he considered that to be blasphemy and heresy. And therefore, he was giving Christians the opportunity to die for their faith when Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus. And so you wonder why in the world would baptism have been, American Christians have a hard time understanding why baptism would be such a big deal. But go ask the hundreds of thousands of Muslims who are becoming Christians in our own time. You do know that more Muslims have been converted in the last 25 years than in all of previous history. In in the midst of all the horrible stuff that has happened in the world since 2001, God is up to something, and Muslims are coming to faith in Christ. But when they're baptized, it can mean terrible costs, including their lives, the destruction of their families, their homes, and everything. Uh, A few years ago, I was at a shepherd's conference with John MacArthur, and um, he told the story of a young woman who had come to faith in Christ by listening on a cassette tape, and if you don't know what one of those is, see me afterwards and I'll tell you what it is, a cassette tape of somebody reading one of his sermons in her language. She was a Sunni Muslim in a closed country, a closed Middle Eastern country. That means a country where if you convert from Islam to Christianity, they kill you. And so this 16-year-old girl comes to faith in Christ listening to someone read John MacArthur's sermons in her language, she decides then and there that she wants to study the Bible, learn Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic so that she can translate the Bible into her people's language and dialect. And eventually, when she's 18, she goes to the Master's University in California to study. She has to study computer science because her Muslim country won't let her study the Bible officially, so she studies computer science and she studies Hebrew Greek, and Old Testament, uh, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic on the side. She goes home for Christmas break. She gets to her house. Her father is not there. Her mother is not there, but her uncle shows up who is furious about her conversion and baptism. She has been baptized as a Christian. He knows about this He says to her, you have brought shame on the family, you are a disgrace, you have turned your back on your people and on your religion, and now I'm going to make you pay. And he breaks a chair, he takes the leg of the chair, he begins to beat her to death. As this is happening, her father walks in the door, restrains his brother, takes his daughter to the hospital and then to the airport, puts her on a plane back to California and says, darling, you're not going to be able to come home again. He was a Muslim, but he loved his daughter. When she gets back, the, you know, the resident uh, assistants at, at Masters are, you know, okay, what are we going to do? The dorms are normally closed during the Christmas holidays, but this girl is shown back up again. She tells the story. They say, Dr. MacArthur needs to hear this. They take, he, they take her to Dr. MacArthur, and he listens to the whole story, and he says, may I ask you a question? What in the world were you thinking as your uncle was trying to kill you? And she said, the 18-year-old girl says to Dr. MacArthur, I was thinking this man has a religion that he would kill for, but I have a Savior I would die for. Now, that's what baptism means, folks. We, 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 Jesus is our Lord. Nobody is our Lord but Jesus. We answer to him alone. There is no authority in this world that can, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So you can kill us if you want, but our name has been changed, and we are under Jesus now. And, and, and so, isn't it interesting? Jesus says, here's how you make a disciple. Your, my disciples take my name. And no matter what the world thinks about that, my disciples identify themselves with me. They're under my lordship, whatever that means. This 18-year-old girl understood that. Now, Jesus goes on to say, look at verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And notice it's not, okay, keep it simple, guys. Don't get too complex. Just a real basic gospel outline. No, he says, okay, here's what I'd like you to teach them. I'd like you to teach them everything I ever taught you. <laughs> and by the way, did you, did you catch the reading from Luke 24, 46 and 47? You, didn't, you may not have known it, but those were Jesus' words. Jesus opened up his Old Testament to his disciples and taught them about himself, about the Messiah's death and resurrection from all of the scriptures, the whole Hebrew Bible, uh, uh, prominent evangelical pastor just recently said if we want to reach people for the gospel we've got to unhook or unhitch Jesus and the gospel from the old testament well <laughs> fancy that Jesus says if you want to make a disciple you need your whole bible you need your whole bible to make a disciple you've got you've got to teach a disciple everything that I ever taught you, and Luke 24, both the story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus and the passage that was read to earlier on the platform, speak of that point. Jesus opened up the whole of the Scriptures, the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms, it says in that passage in Luke 24, 46 and 47, and He taught them the things about the Christ, His death and His resurrection. And we need that if we're going to be disciples. But interestingly, He doesn't just say, teach them everything that I've commanded you. He says, teach them to observe everything that I commanded you. In other words, Jesus doesn't want us just to know stuff. He wants us to live out that truth Jesus is always talking about our being hearers and doers of the word. He's not telling you that faith plus works equals salvation when he says he wants you to be a hearer and a doer of the word. What he means is that having been saved by grace, you are saved by grace in order that you may live out the truth of God's word. And so he wants disciples that live out the truth of his word. So they don't just know about God's sovereignty, they live out that truth in their lives. They don't just know about God's goodness in the most difficult circumstances of of the believer's life from studying God's word, they live that out like Margaret Dubois did, who was a nurse in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and when she was on the night shift The people who were watching over her two-year-old boy lost track of him, found him in the pool face down, they don't know how long, and he was airlifted to Blair Batson uh, Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at the University of Mississippi Medical Center in Jackson, and two days later they they were not able to, to save the child, and he died in her arms. As I stood in their little room in Blair Batson... And as he took his last breaths and the little monitor flatlined, she looked up at me and she said, Ligon, can we sing the doxology? And I thought, this this woman knows so much more about God than I do. I I have no business being in the room with this. I felt like I was standing next to Job. You You remember how Job responds? Your children are dead. Your riches are gone. Your servants have been Killed and scattered, everything's gone, Job. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And Job fell down and worshiped God. Let me tell you, in that room were medical doctors and pediatric intensive care unit nurses who see stuff every day like this. And when Margaret said that, there was not a dry eye in the room. The witness to, she didn't have a cognitive assent to the sovereignty and goodness of God. It had worked into her bloodstream and bones down to the sinews. Jesus says, That's what I'm looking for. I, I, I don't want you just to be able to pass the test on providence, I want you to pass the test of life where you believe in my providence. Or maybe it's like Diane Sartell. Some of you will know the name John Sartell, a pastor who was in Memphis and is now back in this area on New Year's Day, 1992. His brother Mike was driving back from Memphis to Yazoo City, Mississippi, where he's a pastor, and a little girl who had gotten a car for Christmas, lost control, crossed the interstate, and hit them head on. And it killed Mike instantly. It threw their youngest child, Nate, through the window. He was killed instantly. Catherine and Preston and, uh, and Diane were in such bad shape, they had to be taken to three different hospitals. When Catherine finally woke up two days later, the first thing she started asking, where's Mike, where's, Di- where's Catherine, where's, Diane? where's uh, Nate, where's Preston? And uh, they wouldn't tell. When she was strong enough to know, finally... They said, Catherine, they they said, Diane, Mike's dead, and and Nate's dead too. Catherine's okay. Preston's in another hospital. And, I mean, what do you say when that happens? And she said her first words, the Lord is good in all he does. I, I don't know how I respond in that moment. But she believed everything in her Bible. At, at, at a worst moment of life, she believed every, So this is what Jesus said. saying. That's how you make a disciple. You teach them everything that I've taught and commanded, and then you teach them to obey it, to live it out in the worst parts of life. That's how you do it. Now, did Jesus give this command, and then whoosh, he's off to heaven in the ascension, and it's all up to us? No. Jesus, from the right hand of God, is still providing for you, in this kind of discipleship. And Paul tells you that. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Paul tells you that in Ephesians 4. He says that when Christ ascended on high, leaving, uh, leading captivity captive, he gave gifts to men. And look at verse 11. What gifts? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor-teachers or shepherd teachers for what? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. In other words, in heaven, Jesus is pouring out on his church what, do, what they need. What do we need? We need pastor teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints, for the works of service, and for the building up of the body of Christ. So by the way, Jesus doesn't give you gifts that you don't need. So if Jesus gave you pastor, teacher, shepherds, elders, you need them. And so Jesus is continuing to supply his church pastor, teacher, shepherd, elders. And then they're going to do what? They're going to do what Jesus told his disciples to do in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Now let me prove to you that Paul gets this. Paul points out that Jesus has not only given pastor, teacher, shepherd, elders to you for your discipleship, he has also given the Bible. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. You really could look all the way from verses 14 to 17. I want to zero in on verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration, or maybe a better translation, all Scripture is God-breathed. And is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, verse 17, for what? That the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Did you know that? The Bible is given to you by God, the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus has given, in order to equip you for every good work. So what do you need to be equipped for the work of service? You need pastor, teacher, shepherd, elders who teach you the Bible. Now, the Apostle Paul relates this to our salvation. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, and look at the, by the way, another passage, the Scripture passages and the songs were great today for this message. What a coincidence. Um, Listen to what he says. We sang it. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not as a result of works so that no one can boast. So Paul makes it clear, if you think your works are what saves you, bad news, you're going to hell. Your goodness, in heaven there are going to be two lines, people who think they're good and people who know that they were not but they're trusting in Jesus. If you're in the line in heaven where you walk up to God and you say, I'm a good person, I try to be a good person, you're in trouble. No one is reconciled to God by their goodness or their works. No one. So Paul makes it clear, you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You you realize that there is nothing in you that can make you right with God, and there is nothing that you can do to make yourself right with God. So Paul hates works, right? No. Interestingly, Paul talks more about works than James does. Paul's very concerned that Christians do good works, but you've got to get them in the right place. We are not saved by works We're saved to works. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, so that we can do the works that God has prepared for us from before the foundation of the world. And that's exactly what Paul says in verse 10. We're not saved by works, for we are his workmanship. We're not saved by works. Our works are the result of His workmanship in us. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So when we're saved by grace through faith in Christ, when we put all of our trust in Him, then and only then are we able to do good works. We're not saved by that, those good works. We're saved for those good works. We're saved unto those good works. We're finally free to be what God created us to be and intended us to be. And how are we equipped for those good works? Well, we just read 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 by the Bible. And how else? By pastor, teacher, shepherd, elders whom God has given to teach us the Bible so that we will believe it and live it out. And uh, Paul gives the qualifications, if you'll turn with me to 1 Timothy again, 1 Timothy chapter 3. He gives the qualifications for these pastor, teacher, shepherd, elders there. Look at verse 1, anyone aspires to the office of overseer, my translation says, it's the word, the, the word from which we get the English word bishop, it's actually episkopoi or episkopos, um, and it's a synonym in the New Testament with elder. So, pastors, shepherds, bishops, elders, presbyters—all of those words mean the same thing in the New Testament. There, uh, if we can put it this way, but presbyter, from which we get the term Presbyterian, is used far more frequently of, of, of these people than any other term. Other than teacher or um, and 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 overseer or bishop is used less frequently, but that's actually a description. An, an overseer guides or shepherds or leads you, not like a guy with a bullwhip saying "Ha, get on, do it," but a person who says "Follow me." Let me show you how to do it. Follow me. I'm going to guide you in the Christian life. And look at what Paul says this person needs to be like. Verse 2, above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, manages his household well, keeps his children submissive, not a new convert, Lest he become puffed up, well thought of by outsiders. Isn't it interesting? All of it is character. It's it's all character except for one thing. He's he's able to teach. Why? Because this is the way that you equip a disciple. He's got to be have good character. Interestingly, isn't it? It's in his home. So, you know, it's not just he's got a great reputation as a business leader. It's, you know, actually he, he operates with Christian integrity in his home. His wife could testify to that, his children could testify to that. He's a good husband, he's a good dad, and he lives out his faith in private as well in public. He's not a hypocrite. And he can teach. It's fascinating. Why? Because this is what the Lord uses to equip his church and he gives pastor, teacher, shepherd, elders to teach it. Now, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Paul then says to Timothy, Timothy, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It's, that's virtually Paul's Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 to 20 you've heard me teach these things. You teach the same things, entrust them to faithful men who will entrust them to others. You you disciple pastor, teacher, shepherd, elders who will disciple others, and that is how the Great Commission will be Fulfilled. That's why it's so remarkable that more churches don't understand what you seem to understand that there is a connection between preparing pastor, teacher, shepherd, elders, and the fulfillment of the Great Commission. The, The great need in Christianity worldwide right now, the great need, is for pastors that understand their Bibles and are equipped. That all the ministries that you've got here this week. C, because they're out there like I am. I'm on every continent about once every 18 months. And the, the staggering lack of preparation of pastors and what pastors don't know will take your breath away. And there's every kind of heresy under the sun out there on the mission field. And what do we need to combat that? The Word of God. But you have to have trained, prepared pastor, teacher, shepherd, elders to teach that Word to build up the church. You want to you do something for the Great Commission? Commit yourself to equipping pastor, teacher, shepherd, elders for the whole church. And let me tell you, we've got our own challenges here in the United States. You know, I've got good news and bad news for you. Most seminaries in the United States are in decline. Now, I said that's good news and bad news. You may wonder, why does he think it's a good, good news that most seminaries are in decline? Because a lot of them are liberal. They can't close their doors fast enough as far as I'm concerned. Close them up. Uh, there's a plummeting decline in seminaries where the Word of God is not believed. Sadly, they have massive endowments and they'll be able to keep their doors open even when they have no students. But even evangelical seminaries are struggling and there are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, One reason, by the way, is undergraduate student debt. The average American undergraduate student graduates with $40,000 of debt. And it's really hard to go on and do graduate education when you've got that kind of debt, especially when you're going to go be a pastor and you're not going to be making that much money. It's hard enough for doctors and lawyers to pay off their students' loans. You think about trying to go to the mission field with debt. It's Very, very difficult. So seminaries are facing real challenges, but seminaries are very, very important. I I serve Reformed Theological Seminary, which started in 1966 with 14 students in Jackson, Mississippi, not exactly the center of the world. And today, we're the largest Reformed seminary in the world with, at any given time, between about 1,600 and 2,000 students taking courses in nine cities, in eight states, in three foreign countries. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a real joy. I'm not educating most people, but I am trying to equip some Marines, uh, some Marines for the gospel. And it takes a long time to do that. You don't just prepare a, a, a person to pastor quickly. In fact, my, my view is, and it's RTS's commitment, you need two things to really prepare someone for a ministry in a Bible-believing, reformed congregation. You need a a healthy local church where that person is involved in and accountable. And you need a good seminary. And and one of the reasons is seminarians, Bible-believing seminarians, are coming to seminary knowing less Bible and theology than ever before less than ever before. And, and that means that person in a matter of years is going to be teaching the Bible to people. It's, we're on red alert to make sure that they understand the Bible in theology before they start pe- teaching people the Bible in theology before they attempt to start equipping the church. And that means you need to care about what's going on in the preparing of pastors. I, I take my leadership team around to sister institutions every year to see what we can learn from them. I've been to Westminster Seminary, Southern Seminary in Louisville, Covenant Seminary, Dallas Seminary, and met with the leaders of those institutions. And interestingly, I've asked every one of them, what are some of the things you're seeing amongst your students? And they, all of them have said something like this, we love our students, they're great, their tails are wagging, they're, they're motivated, they're fired up to be here. The only problem is they can't read, they can't write, they can't think, and they can't speak. Now, interestingly, several people came up to me after the early service, including a lawyer who said, you know, we're seeing this in law now. Law firms are having to hire people to write briefs for lawyers because lawyers can't write. Now, that's a, that's a massive educational system problem, and guess who has to end up? Because preachers need to be able to read and think and write and speak. And so that means the seminary has to pick up on all of the things that elementary school and high school and college didn't do for God. So it actually, it's really important that we do our jobs well, but, but we think it needs to be done in the context of life and ministry in the local church. I worked at a local church and went to seminary at the same time over the course of four years, and I learned things that I needed to know both places that I couldn't have learned in just one of them. I got to sit under a pastor who knew how to pastor, who loved God's Word, and who loved God's people. That was invaluable to see. I got to see elders who knew how to be shepherds. I got to see Congregation members live out the Christian life. That was vital for me to see. So preparing a pastor is, is not just pouring some knowledge in his head. It's actually shaping a life. One of, one of my best students ever, a Princeton summa, summa cum laude graduate from Princeton in Russian and history, um, one of the best students I've taught in 30 years, um, he had all the mental apparatus, he had all the, the knowledge that you would want him to have, but where I saw the Lord shape him was in his personal life. His son Jacob was born with cystic fibrosis, and that means Jacob's not going to live um, as long as most people live. When Jacob was six, he, he, he started realizing that he was not like other kids, and uh, Jay and Melody had never told Jacob what he had. And uh, Jacob said, Daddy, am I going to die? Six years old, sits down, Dad, am I going to die? And so Jay has to have the talk. Son, you've got cystic fibrosis. And he said, Son, if I could take this for you, I would. But I can't. God in his sovereignty has given this to you. And that means that you are not going to live as long as other people. And by the way, young Jacob, to this day, he's still alive, he's a teenager now, he's in high school, and uh, he, reads, he reads the Robert Murray McChain Bible, four, four, four chapters a day. He's been doing that since he was six years old, four chapters of the Bible a day, and trusts in Christ. And um, Jay wrote me a note about that conversation, and the last line was this, and he, said, he said, by grace, Jacob seems to understand the gospel and trust in Christ. And then his final sentence is, Lig, I would rather him be converted than well. And again, I thought, you know, that is a man who I would want for my pastor. That's the kind of man I want for my pastor. You cannot pour water to the pancake mix and create that. Pastors are created in the crucible of life. Uh, Martin Luther used to say, prayer, meditation, and temptation make a minister. And by temptation, he didn't mean necessarily being tempted to sin. He meant going through trials. He said, that's how you make a minister. In his introduction to Psalm 5, he says, ministers are not made by reading books, but by living and dying and being damned. Now, Martin Luther had a provocative way of saying things, but you get what he's saying. He means Ministers are made in the crucible of life. It's when they go through what Jay went through and what, what Diane and Margaret and that young woman. That, that God, that's how God makes us. That's how God makes us as Christians. That's how God makes us as ministers. You can't just whip that up. It takes years. But we're committed to do it so that your children and grandchildren have people That believe this Bible, and they believe it down to their bones, and they will not stop believing it and teaching it until they die. So thank you for being committed to seeing pastors, teachers, shepherd, elders who are Jesus' gifts to the church and his means to the church for fulfilling God's mission in the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time in your word, I would ask that you would work through the ministry of this church to raise up disciple-making disciples through pastors who teach and disciple with the word. In Jesus' name, amen.